Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Thank you to the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Conservation organizations play an important role in supporting local farms and food efforts nationwide. In the heart of the Ozarks, this land trust is taking land access for farmers one step further where they're offering affordable land leases. You can learn more about the program and the farm location by contacting 479-966-4666. Information is online at www.nwafarmlink.com. That is nwafarmlink.org. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guests are Tim and Sophie Ng, who are both first-generation Asian-American farmers who left their Silicon Valley careers to start a five-acre micro farm in Northeast Tennessee. Tim is a homestead-focused realtor, and Sophie is the author of the Nourishing Asian Kitchen Cookbook. Tim and Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks. so much, Michael. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So we actually recently met at uh, the Farm Where You Live conference, and we actually had some fun times hanging out, chatting about the cookbook, chatting about what you guys are doing. But why don't you give our audience a little bit of your journey? So we started, what, 12 years ago, really, on this journey, looking through food and realizing when our oldest daughter was born that what we were feeding her, even though we were hand-making our food at home, mm. um, not everything was clean. So it's been a journey. We started cleaning up our Asian sauces, started making things from scratch down to our sriracha, which, uh-huh. by the way, shout out, we love your fire cider sriracha. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, things like that. And um, so it's just been a long journey for us, you know, fast forward to 2020, when the pandemic hit, that's when we said, Hey, you know, our garden's just not enough. We're going to have to bring in some protein. And we expanded to five acres in California. And then ultimately decided, realized actually that we needed a strong community around us. And that's why the move to Tennessee? Yeah, we're we have no farming background whatsoever. We grew up in the city. We're from San Jose, California originally. We went to Polyface and learned from Joel on how to harvest chickens and yeah. as well as rabbits. And we felt uh-huh. really empowered that we could do it. And at that time, and when 2020 happened, we realized that our food system was broken and that we needed to take control and be able to, um, you know, raise real organic foods and uh, to grow our own food. Yeah. So I'd followed Nourishing Traditions, if you're familiar um, with that Absolutely. big nutrition yes. from Sally Fallon. <laughs> so it's been you know, 12 years since we found that book and it really changed our lives. And that's what someone, the person who gave it to us actually said this changed her life and mm-hmm. uh, same thing as well. And while we were going through it and trying to get my parents to eat more of the nourishing traditions recipes, it was missing that umami flavoring that they're so mm-hmm. used to with our Asian cuisine. So it's been, you know, a lot of years in the kitchen with my mom, um, revising some of these recipes, our Asian recipes, and some of the, you know, concepts and principles of Weston, Dr. Weston A. Price to now come together with this book called The Nourishing Asian Kitchen that I've worked very closely with my mom. Very cool. All right. So that must have been cool to be able to work with her as you kind of like discovered this. Talk a little bit about like, okay, so 
what is Asian food known for and what are like the bad things in it? I know one of the big ones is MSG typically. Yeah, MSG is the number one culprit to why we can't eat out anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been a long time. My mom, when we were eating out, we didn't even realize it was MSG before all of this, but she had heart palpitations um, eventually then led to atrial fibrillation. Mm. And because of all of that, it made me realize, Hey, why don't we just start cutting things? You know, I was already doing it with making our own baby food. And then it just really rapidly went to, I'm just going to clean up everything out of our pantry. Mm. And one day I grabbed one of those big black garbage bags and one by one opened the refrigerator door and and just went through all of the condiments. And she came running out saying, what are we going to cook with? (laughs) (laughs) And I told her, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. And it's just been replacing one recipe one by one. And, you know, now we're at the point where you were out here in the middle of nowhere and we really don't have to be dependent Mm. on any of these condiments anymore. We're making it all ourselves. Mm, Absolutely. So talk about what are some of your favorite recipes that are in the cookbook? The, my favorite recipe is the oxtail pho, which Mm. is, um, you know, the, one of the most nourishing things, uh, parts of the animal, there's only one oxtail per cow. And, um, in our culture, my mom would say that that is the, that's where the strength of the cow is actually found. Mm. And, and also where the cow balances itself is with the tail. So we simmer that in a 24 hour bone broth. We have our own organic pho spices that we, you know, package up ourselves and we also sell those separately, but really, honestly, that's my favorite recipe. I have it on the stove going, um, it's between that and the chicken pho, but Mm. we always have some sort of broth going on, um, on the stove and it's great for our busy lives because there's always food. Yeah, um, that's and nourishing. The, and the spices and simmering for several hours is what creates the umami flavor. So mm-hmm. you don't have to mm. right. mystery. Correct. <laughs> Thank you. So, so yeah. part part of this is time. It's not, you know, it's not fast food. You're going to be, I mean, obviously eating it's fast because everyone's enjoying it. Sure. But that aspect of, you know, cooking those those dishes, there is some time involved in making sure that you got all the different steps. Correct. But really, I was just, uh, we had some friends over, they stayed with us and I showed them, you know, we we actually did some recordings and it really is about 15 minutes of hands-on time um, to, from mm-hmm. beginning to end. Most of it's just sitting on the stove and you can go about your day. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. I know my wife particularly likes those that throw stuff in and just let it go. Um, I'm obviously looking at this Vietnamese Afrogato. So tell me a little bit about that. So it's awesome. I mean, we have our own dairy cow, so we have an unlimited access to all this cream. So now I've got a recipe in there to make your own ice cream. Uh, It's sweetened condensed ice cream as well. But then we also have Vietnamese coffee. If you have you ever had that before? I don't think I have. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really, really delicious. And I have that recipe in there, too. It's typically like a dark French roast. Okay mixed in with some sweetened condensed milk, which we also make ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, it really is just pouring the, the espresso coffee that we make over the yeah, over the ice cream. That's how I influence the cookbook. I love coffee and I love ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so the only so, picture with Tim in the cookbook is with a cow. <laughs> okay, very cool. Um, so then when does the book, when is the book released? The book is out December 7th this year. Okay. 
Okay, and we're in 2023. 2023, so. yes, but yes. pre-orders are available now, so you can go to Amazon um, that and just, you know, you can punch in the Nourishing Asian Kitchen, and I also have some pre-order bonuses if you order between now and December 1st, so show you how okay. to cut up a chicken the Japanese way so it's clean, you mm-hmm. don't have to pull your blades, and you're left with a carcass that you can then turn into um, stock. Very cool, very cool. Um, so with doing this cookbook, what would you say were your biggest learning experience throughout it was? I think the biggest learning experience that I had writing this cookbook is realizing that you have to say yes to your dreams. It's something mm. that I have been wanting to do for 12 years. I've thrifted all of the dishes in that cookbook for the last 12 years. And I had been putting it off, you know, year after year because... I worked full time. Yeah. I always wanted to put the recipes together for the kids. Um, And last year, my dad was having health issues. And Tim said, and I told him, I said, I got to take some time off. Give me three months from September to December. And um, and then I'll jump right back to getting a job. I just want to take care of dad. And he said, well, while you're doing that, then why don't you do something with those cardboard boxes full of thrifted dishes or just go donate them? Okay. And, uh, because I said yes to that, I, you know, at, like literally within the month, Chelsea Green Publishing reached out. I had a book deal and it wasn't supposed to be anything like this. <laughs> it was yeah. supposed to be like, go get it printed at FedEx and bound. Right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so we did, you know, by, by November of last year, I signed the book deal with them by February. They were so excited. They said, you know, send in the manuscript by February to get it out this this year. And typically with a big publishing company, it takes about two to three years to get a book Correct. out. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. we we got endorsed. I um Sally Fallon wrote the forward, which is a huge honor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh it's endorsed by Joel Salatin, Sean and Beth Doherty, um, and very respectable people. So I think that was the biggest lesson was realizing, you know, you I've just been storing this all together in my head and not saying yes to myself. You got to say yes to everything else. Right. Um, as Mm. a mom. And it kind of felt selfish for a while, even while I was writing the book, because I have all these other responsibilities at home, the farm, the kids, um, and, and writing a book is, is not a lucrative thing. You don't make money while you're writing kids. (laughs) Correct. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to get the book out. It's been a hard year, but I'm really excited about it. It's been, it's been getting pretty good reviews so far. Yeah. And I think the Nourishing Traditions book was written so many years ago. It, it was time for just a update, but that that's now, I mean, one of our favorite cuisines is Asian. So I'm really, we're super excited about it. I mean, my wife, I brought her home that card you gave me and she was super, yeah. So we're, we're, we can't wait for it to come out. Great. I'm so excited. Talk us through a little bit about, you know, California to Tennessee. What was that like? And and remind me exactly when you made that transition. It was a really big transition for us. We we started off and we've lived most of our lives in California. I was in the military, went to West Point, served in the army, came back. And in 2019, we started a small garden on our quarter acre lot in the Bay Area and once 2020 happened and we got chickens and we wanted to get some more livestock, we found five acres just north of Sacramento. We wanted to stay in California for family and friends. And what and we we actually, you know, had a great homestead. We had mm. two 
two ponds that were spring fed. We had solar powered um, as well as backup generator. We had a well. So we were pretty getting to be self-sufficient, but uh, we had a hundred ducks too. You brought a hundred ducks. Okay. hundred ducks. Yes. In the Asian cuisine, we love ducks. They're also extremely, extremely difficult to harvest because of all the down. Um, Yeah, they are. I'm well familiar with that. Yes. I feel your pain. And coming from the city, I started calling up a bunch of hunting clubs and they just laughed at me and said, well, we just skin the duck and just take the breast. And no, it's it's all about the skin. It's all about and the duck. It is. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So from there, we, we did quickly realize that what we were lacking was community. And we started looking around and we had an RV. We spent a week in Texas, a week in Oklahoma, and we ended up in East Tennessee. Yeah. Mm. So it started in 2022. So I'm a mortgage lender. And I had refinanced, you know, when rates were down to 2% um, in mm-hmm. 2021. So I had actually refinanced us three times and got us down to two and a quarter. But by January, 2022, I had heard uh, that rates were going to rise. And so, you know, as I'm sure, you know, the market is manipulated. <laughs> and exactly, so I, yeah. I didn't know how quickly or how bad it was going to be. So I said, hey, I know we just built this homestead but if we are ever going to think about leaving california because we didn't have community we already kind of came to that conclusion already then i said yeah we got to go now and so we did go on a two-week trip we checked out texas oklahoma and tennessee and ultimately found an amazing community here and by the time we closed in march of 20 so just two months after in 2022 rates had already jumped up a a point for us and now we're eight and a half right now so homes Homestead wise, it made logical sense to come out to East Tennessee with the natural, lots of water mm-hmm. and the community, but financially it was really difficult to think about. I mean, yes, the interest rate wise, it made sense to make the move now, but we were crushing it in the Bay area. <laughs> I was, we were, we were focused on helping veterans with VA loans because there was no representation out there and mm. being a veteran myself. I wanted to fight for the underdog. There are a lot of, it was really competitive, multiple offer situations in the Bay Area. People had cash or they had stock options. And Mm -hmm. we did a really good job of representing vets. We were winning, winning out. And so it was really difficult to step away Mm -hmm. from the Bay Area. Now I still service the Bay Area now, but Mm -hmm. now I'm kind of doing in both Tennessee as well as in California. So financially, as well as emotionally, right? We have family and friends in California so it wasn't very easy to just pull the plug right there and say goodbye. Um, uh-huh. So we are still very much doing both, but we are emphasizing in, you know, building up our homestead here right. in Tennessee. And most, if not all of our business has come from referrals. Mm-hmm. So it's been people we want to work with, Yeah, which has been, it's been great. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so then let's talk about the, you're the homestead realtor. So how did you decide you wanted to be that person? Well, there's no representation in the homestead community. We, I was, I'm living it, breathing it. I am just at least one or two or three steps ahead. And I am just devouring everything that I can gather, whether it's just reading up on homesteading or attending these conferences or paying, Mm -hmm. you know, paying money to go to these workshops. We are learning as much as we can. We're trying to move as quickly as possible, just like in the Silicon Valley, where like the startup mentality of just get there faster. We are doing exactly that. But also in that same spirit, I want to be able to share what I'm learning. Uh And 
in the real estate industry, you're either specializing in land only or residential or commercial properties. There's no represent, representation in terms of finding the right homestead in terms of combining permaculture, right, design and looking at the land as well as the home overall, but kind of and also thinking about the family unit and and if they don't have a family, just if an individual wants to homestead or have a partner, what what things to look for. And uh -huh. I walk and step with them. And I basically, I used a lot of the experiences and skill sets that I gained from the military, as well as just in the real estate industry, combining it with what I'm learning right now in homesteading. And I'm able to talk to people because a lot of people who are getting into homesteading, they have never farmed before. And so I'm helping them transition from city or suburban life and making that transition and making a smooth transition into homesteading. So many of my clients are coming from out of state. They're coming from the both West and East coast, mm -hmm. and they're looking to do, uh, looking for community and they're looking to homestead. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So then with that, is there like criteria that you have for the property? Or obviously you're also trying to give them lo locations of where would be the best to move, correct? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. I look for a lot of its natural resources. You're also looking for usable acreage. A lot oftentimes people go on Zillow or or Realtor and they just look for, oh, well, how much am I paying per acre? And they're just looking at just the dollars, but uh -huh. not taking into consideration is that land usable? Meaning, is it straight uphill? Is it heavily forested? Because there are dollars that you need to account for in that. Is there natural water? Um, okay, is there a well? And if is the well contaminated? Do you have a backup system? How far away from the road front is it? You know, because people don't want to have a home homestead like right next to the road so people can drive by and see what you're growing. Absolutely. And so I take yep. all of that under consideration as well as security. I am security first minded because coming from a military background, I want to not only grow food, but I want to be able to secure it and also keep my family safe. Absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. Cause people, they see you know, 500 acres and you know, it's only $500,000 and like, Oh, this seems like a great deal. And they don't realize that three quarters of it isn't accessible or there's absolutely no water or it's the wrong type of soil. So having that guided person to walk them through, which is probably the biggest purchase they will make mm -hmm. for their homestead ever is so key. Yes. And oftentimes people try to buy things sight unseen. And I don't recommend that unless you're working with me and, and, and unless you've actually done a recon and came out to take a look at the area, because there are way too many stories of people buying things sight unseen. Then they come out and they take a look and like, oh, that's not what I was looking for. Or, oh, look at the neighbors. Okay. Uh -huh. Yes, you want unrestricted land, but with that freedom of unrestricted land, your neighbors also have the freedom to put up whatever they want on their on their lot as well. And so you want to be community minded as well and take a look and 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 not just buy a bug out spot. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is not a rush purchase, not a fear purchase to just buy some land and hopefully go there when things go down or something like that. You have to be uh diligent about and do your due diligence and research the area, come out spend some time in the community. Sophie didn't mention it, but we actually, how we interviewed the communities, we actually went to the local coffee shops and just kind of sat there and just met mm. with locals to get the vibe and ask our questions because these are things that you're not going to learn just looking online at, on Zillow, for instance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're back with Susan. Susan, let's talk about one of the biggest problems that we see farmers facing today. 
Michael, I'm sure you know it's land access and affordable land access. Housing has changed so much. There's such a desire, you know, for people to experience, you know, maybe having five or 10 acres, a little piece of heaven on earth. But all of these pressures, along with just, you know, urbanization is taking away from a lot of those historic small family farms. And our community is experiencing this. And we are just doing all that we can to try to um, help to curb this, but then also using conservation tools to make that land more affordable for farmers so that they, you know, they can start farming and to have viable farm businesses. The other piece that is important with our work is that um, in some of the properties, we will have infrastructure and shared equipment that will really also reduce that barrier to entry so that farmers have less risk and can focus on growing and growing their businesses so that they can be successful and then start to make you know, some of their own investments and in maybe scaling up or other enterprises. Gotcha. Well, thank you, Susan, for that. And if you are interested in finding out more about what the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust is doing and the affordable land leases they are offering, go check out nwafarmlink.org or contact 479-966-4666. So you've mentioned community a couple of times. Talk a little bit about what that means for you and kind of like what you're building there in Tennessee. Okay, um, I'll start off, and so if sure. you can you can uh, fill in where yeah. This thing. Mm-hmm. For community wise, we come from the city where everyone has a ring doorbell. Nobody interacts with their neighbor, and mm-hmm. if you are knocking on someone's door, it's like, what? What do you want? And the only time I met my neighbors when I was actually moving out, and they <laughs> said, "We're so sorry to see you go." I'm like, "Well, I, I've never even had a conversation with you, and I only see conversations on the the app next door of people just complaining." Yeah. But, when you're, you're living in the community, literally, um, I remember when we first moved out to the community, uh, to the countryside, and we first apologized to our neighbors with like, if we seem to be rude or anything like that, we apologize. We're from the city. And uh, it, because there, there, there would be kids just coming over to our house and just playing. And I guess we're feeding them dinner. And it was just like, okay, uh, this is cool. I mean, coming from 2020, when everyone was like locked away in their, in yeah. Their- but people would literally come over and borrow a cup of sugar. You know, neighbors would come over. And and here, even we're out in Tennessee, um, things cost a lot. You know, every little bit of thing. So whether you have a tractor and you need attachments, you need to buy every single attachment you can borrow from your neighbor. So that uh-huh. way, whereas in the city, everyone has their own lawnmower and, and whatnot. So um, it's being more purposeful and, and um, putting dollars to work because you have to how do I phrase this? In the countryside, you can't just delegate and just go on the Yelp app and hire out to do work. You have to learn to do things on your own and to Uh be handy, even like I'm not even handy. I wasn't handy. I couldn't even put together Ikea furniture without getting so upset. But being out here has forced me to like, okay, I need to learn. And whether it's through YouTube or through my neighbors and through my community, here we go with community, is you know, out here, nobody cares about what your LinkedIn profile looks like or what your job position title is. It's more of what skill sets do you have and what can you provide for the community? Uh And we are going back to 
tradition. We're going back to where we actually respect our elders and actually listen to our elders. And there, are, in these communities, there are a lot of people who are senior, but they have so much wisdom that they want to share as to how to preserve food, for instance. Okay, so mm -hmm. I'll jump in there because mm -hmm. that's a good segue. That's that. I mean, the definition of community for me is is where that part intersects. Um, and being with, there's a lot of elders in our community, which is great because there's not that awkward competition with people around our age. I'm sure you're familiar mm. being in the city or, mm -hmm. you know, they really just want help and they want to yeah. teach. And I'm here, I want to help and I want to learn. And mm -hmm. so it really is just, most of them don't have kids around anymore. Their kids have moved out to the wayside or they're- To the city. To the to city, the yeah. right. And yeah. so they're by themselves. They're, you know, we're talking close to 70 year olds and um, I I love them. They have, they've kind of adopted me and I've adopted them. And mm -hmm. it, yeah, it's, it's very busy because we are, you know, we find ourselves caretakers as well. And, mm. but we, I mean, we, we yeah. really enjoy it and it's giving back. And I, I love that part of it where if I'm making an extra pho or I'm making a beef heart stir fry and not everybody, a beef heart is pretty big for, for our family. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I'll, I'll make some extra and, and share it with our garden veggies and it's no big deal. And case in point, we never intended on owning cows. True. We we yeah. did we didn't. We we had chickens and I thought mm -hmm. at most I would have sheep and maybe pigs, but we came out here and like what Sophie said, we got connected with community and um, found some elders and they took us under our wing and actually we shadowed them for six months straight learning how to take care of dairy cows. Yeah. And before it, we knew it, now we have three of our own. Well, I mean, she she taught me how to milk a cow like intentionally mm -hmm. with hand milking even though she has a perfectly good mm -hmm. milker yeah yeah and, um, she it was very mr miyagi style of mm -hmm. like you've got to learn how to feel you got to make sure you know how to strip it out because otherwise she might have mastitis right mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. even just looking at the cow and and jersey cows so we have three now but jersey cows tend to look skinny on, on the skinnier Later. side yeah and so she, you know it's just and training us to use our eyes use our mm -hmm. hands use our instincts because she said, if your cow loses too much weight and we're all grass fed, we don't use any conventional grains. She said, it's going to cost you a lot more money and resources mm -hmm. to get the cow back up. And she even helped us out when we wanted to purchase a cow and it was on Facebook marketplace or on Craigslist. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like buying a used car. You're like, <laughs> no. okay, what am I looking at here? And so to have that sort of hand holding through it. We're just so grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. So it's saying yes and being willing, being open to say yes um, yeah. to opportunities. Yeah. There's yeah. no blue book for dairy cows. No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so with that community, then um, you've got the folks around you. Um, tell us a little bit about like on your farm, what are the different um, enterprises you got going on? So right now we have mainly our, we have a micro dairy. Mm -hmm. So we sell our milk, we sell yogurt and butter cream um we take that as an opportunity for to teach our children so they actually that's their business they keep the profits of that but they also put money back towards um any Feed. sort of alfalfa you know yeah. you know um supplements mm -hmm. pellets as well as you know if they if we need a vet if we need a vet they'll come in then yeah they'll yeah pay. I mean, they own one eighth of a cow, so it's not much, but it is yeah. to them some responsibility. But you know, it it 
keeps them motivated mm-hmm. and it keeps them learning how to work together, which is really important to us because of, you know, 2020 and really focusing on how do we make our children recession proof or pandemic proof um, and teaching them to be producers rather than just consumers the way that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we grew up, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so with that, then you're, you mentioned your kids too. So I'm, I'm assuming that's part of the reason you guys homestead and do all this stuff is to kind of educate them and, um, train them on that. What kind of, um, are there specific things you wanted to make sure that they learned from this? Yeah. So that they are the entire reason why we went into homesteading and they, mm-hmm this they redefine leaving a lasting legacy when we were in the city leaving a legacy was creating maybe like a five to nine account for them and or just leaving money for them but since we've been on this journey we want to teach them to be recession proof we want them to gain skill sets invaluable skill sets that they can apply so that we know that they will be taken care of and that was create that to us is creating a legacy a lasting legacy yeah Uh Yeah. Make them successful beyond you. So they, I mean, ideally I'd love for them to continue working together. I bought a domain when the little one was six months old. So joyandjolie.com, it's their names. And, you know, it was a vision of mine to have them make soap and sell it, but Uh actually they're selling their salves. We make all of the things we use, all of the things that we make. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And, um, and so everything is beyond organic, uh, wild crafted. If we're not growing it ourselves mm-hmm. um, or we source everything clean, including the fuss spice mixes. So all of that is their business. They're helping to figure out, you know, put together profit and loss statements, mm-hmm. um, starting to negotiate. They're listening to the phone calls. They're, mm-hmm. they're with me by my side mm-hmm. when I'm, you know, cr- starting partnerships and things like that. So they're, they're seeing it all. And we're also teaching them how to speak up, how to, how to do a sales pitch to strangers, oh, yeah. you know? And so <laughs> we'll go to these homesteading conferences. We'll be vendors there and we have them speak up and sell yeah. their products. Yeah. yeah. And and many people just buy it because the little one is cute. So <laughs> correct. Yes, yes, yes. I have not, you know, ever taken advantage of that in our business. Um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's, I think, I, but again, I think that's part of them learning those interactions too. um, them getting trained on, you know, what, what does good sales look like and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, being able to do that. Um, so you do the, the spices, you do the micro dairy, what else is going on in your lives? Well, the cookbook is uh-huh. a big part that kind of took over my last year, but ironically, it's been an incredible uh, lead qualifier for us for the real estate business. <laughs> oh, interesting. And, Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So as people hear our stories through, you know, as I speak or Tim does soil demonstrations or even through podcasts and um, people are finding the story very compelling and saying, Hey, sounds like you found community. So we want to do what you're doing and we want to know where you're at and how you found your community. So yeah. We are licensed. Uh, I'm in. I'm licensed in three states in California and Tim as well. California, Tennessee, and North Carolina because we live on the border of East Tennessee and kind of North Carolina as well. Gotcha. Okay. There's uh, an organic-minded community out there in kind of Western North Carolina, and so we just thought it'd be really smart to cover that as well because we do are starting to get um, a lot of people come in and and ask. Uh-huh. So it's been a lead qualifier for us, ironically, through social media. Um, and really just 
identifying what it is that they want and, and servicing them. Yeah. We want to be able to inspire others. If we can do it, you can do it too. And be that one-stop shop. So we know what to look for. We'll help you find the right property. And also, I'm also a soil land consultant. And I'll also show you how to make that transition, how to turn dirt into soil. Right. And uh-huh. uh, we're currently working on putting together a network of 50, at least uh, to cover 50 states okay. for vetted real estate um, agents that understand homesteading and what to look for in land. So as mm-hmm. people reach out to us in different states, we'll be able to service them in one of two ways. You want to talk about it? Yeah. So we are, I'm either going to be able to refer them to a knowledgeable mm-hmm. homesteading agent in the state that they are looking in, or I will do a partnership because oftentimes people reach out and they want to work directly with me. And I want to be able to have access to maybe a local MLS. And uh-huh. so I will team up with that local agent just to ensure that our clients are taken care of. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Because unfortunately, 99% of real estate agents have no idea about soil. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We would love our real estate agent, but she took us to many houses. Like, I'm sorry, but this, this ain't going to work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's the, the pain point that we had yeah. as well. Yeah. And we want to make sure it's a really good experience. We're not just shoehorn you into a property just to make the deal work. We want to make sure all of the, our business is built off of referrals. We want to make sure it's a great experience overall. And we recognize it's, it is like you said, Michael, one of the biggest, if not the biggest investment of the family or the person's life. It's not like buying a condo and kind of growing out and taking the equity, moving into a single family. You know, it's not like that because when you're getting to the point where you're building a farm or a homestead, mm-hmm. you're investing time mm-hmm. and resources into that soil and building up. Soil. Yeah. And the, and the going trend right now is a, there's a lot of people looking for multi-generational property. Right. So they're not looking only just for themselves, but they're looking for their children who maybe are not there yet, yeah. mm-hmm. but they will be. And so they're kind of factoring that into their plan and want to make sure there's enough real estate for them to build their homes on this property. So this is not just something that you just just buy randomly for a property. Right. You need to do your due diligence and you need a realtor that's actually going to have your best interests in mind and, and know what they're looking for. Yeah, that is something that's very interesting. I mean, my, my in-laws have kept talking about, they want to move to Costa Rica or uh, Panama and bring us along. And I'm like, sorry, guys, we, got, we kind of got a lot going on here. That ain't happening. But... Um, <laughs> I get that because again, if I was going to relocate halfway across the country with three kids right now, I would definitely want, you know, someone to go with us. And then, you know, if I was older uh, and another 20 years and my kids are, I want them to settle around me. So I see that aspect of that multi-generational. I think that is part of that community aspect. I think as Americans, we're so often conditioned to be very individualistic and, so many other cultures are not that way. So many more other cultures, they're a lot more community minded. Um, and I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a multi-generational family. We've, my parents have lived with us since, you know, they were starting to get older mm. in their 60s, 65. And then, you know, it's, they've, the kids have grown up with grandma and grandpa, and they've learned a lot of these skills that are passed down and and even though I'd worked in tech for 15 years prior to moving out here, um, there's a lot of things that we can pick and choose from that. Like I, 
you know, some of my relatives will make fun of us and say like, oh, you know, Sophie's gone back a hundred years. And there's a part of me that says I could go back further if I could. Yeah. 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 What's, what's wrong with that? Um, Exactly. But you're absolutely right, Michael, in terms of certain cultures may gravitate towards that sort of living, but I'm finding Americans as a whole now are trending towards that. Yeah. Uh It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And, And I would say that it's not trending towards it. I think there. I think the American culture is also going back too. Because mm-hmm. if you look at yeah. land and how land was was bought and sold back then, it was large, large parcels. And then, yes. as families were moving, individual families were moving out into the city. That's when they started selling out parcels. Um, but when you get into these neck of the yeah. woods, you see that you know a lot of same people with the same last names are on a street, for example. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, like they're trying to go that community aspect in these, like, I don't know what you call them, mega developments where they've got like the movie theater, the, the shopping, everything. And then they have apartments above and mm-hmm. you've got, you know, maybe two, three, maybe 400 apartments. I mean, there's so many of those I can count on my hand, like three or four of those communities just within the Dayton Cincy Metro. Um Obviously, there's usually not a, no no organic farming with that, and there's no like actual like uh, rural aspect to that. But it is interesting that they are trying to create that that community aspect. Yeah, right. absolutely. And we've come a long way. I used I used to think those were really awesome to have your own <laughs> business downstairs and go upstairs and go to sleep. Yeah, but, yes. Santa, yeah. Santa Ana has a really we've, good. <laughs> we've come a long way. <laughs> well, I mean, on one aspect, like the one restaurant, my wife's favorite restaurant is in one of those places. And I mean, if we didn't have the farm, I'd think she would think twice because you're like you're gonna eat there <laughs> every day. Um, but I, I mean, I think there is something to be said for that small town where, you know, the storefront, you have your shop downstairs and then you live above or you live behind. Um, There's that aspect of community I think is really interesting. And I think when you look at, I think the automobile was one of the greatest uh, problem uh, challenges to that because we just all of a sudden now we could live out the country and be in the city. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what does um, life hold for you guys next? Well, the book comes out uh, in December. Mm-hmm. So between now and then, it's just been the ginormous push to to get pre-orders. And then we'll start speaking back up again um, early next spring. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, so we're, we're going to be extremely busy going to a lot of homesteading conferences, been invited to speak. And just doing a lot of real yeah, estate. We're just excited yeah. to be a part of the movement. Uh, you know, Joel calls it the homestead tsunami. Mm-hmm. And we're just excited to be a part of it, to um, be with others that <laughs> have now become our community, even though it's been online um, and just talking to people like yourselves. Right. But mm-hmm. being that we're not alone, because that's what we were missing out in California was doing all of this in uh-huh. a vacuum and then realizing, oh, we didn't even know it was called homesteading back then. Yeah. We had to make sure that we were growing our own food. We wanted yes. to make we wanted to make sure we weren't going crazy. And yeah. we're coming from Silicon Valley where we there's an app for everything. Yeah. And to say that we want to go backwards, but intentionally going backwards so that we can actually eat nourishing foods and know where uh-huh. our food comes from. It has been um 
sort of lonely journey and to find community, not only, yes, our local community, but our homesteading community mm-hmm. has been awesome. And mm-hmm. it's given us a lot of hope and it's been great for our children. Yep. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast and can't wait to share this with our audience. Thank you so much, Michael, for having us on the show. Thank you. And you can uh, check us out on Instagram and on Facebook with Sprinkle with Soil. Yes. Okay. And then the website, it's joyandjolie.com. Yeah. That's to buy the spices. Um, yeah. Book and blog. Follow us on our homesteading journey of Sprinkle with Soil. Yep. And we have our own podcast as well called Call to Farms. <laughs> yes. Because your background's military. That's yeah. right. And awesome. On the- Real estate side, we've got... And on the real estate side, you can uh, check out my services at homesteadingrealtor.com. Very cool. All right. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks, Michael. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.